Hey everybody, a little different format today. My friend John Turner, who has been on the podcast a couple times before, wanted to share his experience at a place called Heartcore, which is located in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. And he gave a presentation on uh, strength training as it relates to the equipment MedX and Nautilus. So for the first, um, I would say half hour or so, a little bit longer, it's his actual presentation in the format that he presented it. And after that, we get into a, a little conversation about it and ask a couple questions and we talk about the, the way the industry's headed and so on. So uh, I hope you enjoy it and I'll talk to you later. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Eric. Thank you for um, <clears throat> having me on again. Recently, I spoke at a new medics facility in uh, Niagara Falls, and um, it was to the uh, the staff. And in, atten in attendance, there was um, a cardiologist and a couple of exercise physiologists. And um, I thought I'd preface my remarks with giving them a bit of background <clears throat> on uh, uh, where the fitness industry was and where it is today. So here's what I know. In uh, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, which is, used to be uh, the Pittsburgh of Canada, in 1970, Hamilton had four commercial gyms. We had uh, two Victanis. Uh, that was the biggest chain in the world at that time. Uh, they were known as Chrome Palaces. They had uh, racks of light chrome dumbbells and stands of light chrome barbells. Had a couple of artifacts from the 1950s fitness industry. They had a, uh, a horizontally mounted uh, cylinder that was uh, had a corrugated surface that was like it would revolve. It was electronic, and you would uh, put your uh, your butt against that to tone it. And then they had uh, belts that uh, you would uh, put around either your hips or your waist, and that was supposed to shake the fat off you. But their main feature was they had several universal jungle gyms. And uh, by jungle gyms, they had a, um, a central tower that housed four weight stacks that served the four wor uh, working stations, which allowed four people to train simultaneously. Typically, they'd have a leg press a and a bench press. And then the other two workstations could be um, um, a lat pull down, or they could be a floor pulley, or they could be a leg curl, or a leg extension, or a seated press. <laughs> now the other two gyms were independently owned, and they had um, uh, heavy cast iron barbells. They'd have uh, a couple of Olympic sets, no machines. There'd be uh, racks of heavy cast iron dumbbells up to 150 pounds. Um, for the Canadian audience, that was like uh, 70 kilograms. And one of them had a, uh, and they'd have parallel bars that have um, chaining bars that have uh, overhead pulleys, floor pulleys. One of them had a wrestling ring because the owner, Jack Wentworth, had been a, uh, a very good uh, wrestler back when uh, wrestling was real. Also in 1970, <clears throat> a man named Arthur Jones began writing an Iron Man magazine. Now, Iron Man magazine wasn't the glossy publication that you see on the newsstands today. Iron Man in 1970 wasn't available on the newsstands. It was only available by subscription. And there was only about 14 to 15,000 subscribers. 
So Arthur began writing in Iron Man, and later in 1970, he wrote what I believe is the greatest book ever written on progressive resistance exercise, Nautilus Training Principles, Bolton Number 1. And he sold it through Iron Man. And within about a year, he'd published, he'd printed off 5,000 copies. And within a year, they were sold out. So literally, one in three readers of Iron Man read that book, and it changed a lot of people's lives. In late 1970, November the 30th, 1970, Arthur sold his first Nautilus machine, a plate-loading pullover, to a lawyer named Dana Brigham in Miami, Florida. Arthur called it the first intelligent exercise machine because it met the requirements of full-range exercise. Full-range exercise has 10 requirements. Uh, it's a, one is a rotational form of exercise. Two is a direct form of exercise. Three, an automatically variable form of resistance. Five, resist, uh, four, balanced resistance. Five, resistance that's provided in the stretched starting position. Six is negative work. Seven is positive work. Eight is pre-stretching. Nine is resistance that's provided in the finishing position. And ten, an unrestricted speed of movement. Now, by comparison, a barbell only meets three of those requirements. Positive work, negative work, and an unrestricted speed of movement. The following year, in 1971, it was either the Kansas City Chiefs or the Miami Dolphins. They bought a full line of Nautilus, followed by the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, that pretty well guaranteed the company's success. And shortly thereafter, every NFL team bought Nautilus and used Nautilus because they wouldn't, they couldn't have a, allow themselves to be in a competitive disadvantage. And in the years that followed, Nautilus was literally everywhere. You could find them in fire halls, police stations, military bases, high schools, universities, colleges, hospitals, orthopedic clinics, rec centers. You could find them in baseball stadiums and hockey rinks and football stadiums. And then there was the gym business. At one time, there was over 5,000 gyms that incorporated the word Nautilus into their business name. The word Nautilus became generic, just like Kleenex, and they became the undisputed industry leader. In June 1986, Arthur sold Nautilus. But prior to selling Nautilus, Arthur had been engaged in a lot of research, primarily on the lumbar spine. Because low back pain is probably the second most common medical complaint, only behind the headache or the cold. And uh, if you live long enough, you will suffer a low back injury. I broke a bone in my lower back in uh, 1979, the pars interarticularis at L5-S1. And just to tell you how debilitating that type of injury can be, pulling on my socks was like an Olympic event for me. So in uh, the following year, in 1987, I was down in Cleveland, Ohio, doing a trade show, and I bought a copy of the USA Today. And I opened it up, and there was a full-page ad announcing the launch of Medics. Not the Medics exercise machines, the Medics medical lumbar extension machine. 
Now, the medics exercise machines followed uh, three or four years later. They weren't designed by Arthur. They were designed by Phil Sensel. But they did meet the requirements of full-range exercise. And the main feature that they had was a weight stack that, that was designed and patented by Arthur in 1988. The weight stacks in a Nautilus machine are pulled from above, and they slide over two vertical guide rods. The weight stacks on a medics exercise machine are driven from below. It doesn't require the guide rods. There's less friction. Um, the weight stacks on Nautilus go up in 10, 20, or 25-pound increments. The weight stacks on the medics exercise machine go up in much smaller increments, enabling the users to fine-tune their exercise. Also, the stroke of the weight stack on a medics machine is much shorter, so there's much less potential to introduce kinetic energy to the movement. When you move fast, too fast, you can introduce a ballistic effect to the weight stack, and the weight will literally float upwards, relieving the muscles of work, which is not something that we'd want to do. So where we are today is in Hamilton. We went from four gyms. There's about 70 gyms now in Hamilton. We have two chains. One is um, Curves, and the other is, I think, Canada's probably their Canada's largest fitness chain, Life Fitness. But then we have aerobic studios, Pilates studios, yoga studios. We have boot camps. We have Aftershock. We have CrossFit. We have Zumba. Um, everything from soup to nuts today. Now, about four years ago, two um, professional hockey players, National Hockey League players, retired, and they both opened clubs in Toronto. And because they were sports celebrities, the media covered their opening, the grand openings. One was called a sports-specific uh, training facility, and the other was called a high-performance training facility. And the media covered the opening, and they showed these young 20-year-old hockey players pulling into the parking lot in their $200,000 Aston Martins and showed them going inside where they were throwing around a $40 medicine ball. The fitness industry is going backwards. It's going backwards. Arthur said that the field of transportation had four evolutionary steps. We began by walking. Then we had animal-powered transport. We had the automobile and the airplane, and each step resulted in a faster speed of travel. Exercise also had four evolutionary steps. It began with calisthenics, then it went to gymnastics, then it went to the adjustable barbell, and then it went to full-range exercise, which you find with Nautilus and Medics. So when I said that uh, we're going backwards, we're, we're hurtling backwards. In 2010, Canada hosted the Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver, and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, that's our national TV network, they showcased three of our Olympians in training for their events. One was a young man competing in the snowboarding event. Another was a young woman competing in the luge. And the third was uh, a man that was uh, on the four-man bobsled. And the first two the snowboarder and the luge competitor were shown doing power cleans. Now, you don't have to be an exercise physiologist or uh, 
or a, um, a trainer to ask yourself, how does doing a power clean help you slide down a mountain? Uh, the uh, man on the bobsled, he was shown flipping a tire. So, like I said, the, the, the fitness field is hurtling backwards. And um, fitness fads are like buses. Another one will come by in 30 minutes. So, is there an ultimate way to train? Well, the United States Army asked itself that question, the United States military. And after a lot of consultation, they agreed that they were going to determine the ultimate way to train, and they were going to do that at the military academy at West Point in New York. And they decided they were going to use cadets from the Army football team. Now, this is important. <clears throat> these, these cadets were young, elite specimens. They were highly motivated, highly competitive. They had a military mentality. They obeyed orders without question. They were not your typical gym members. So because um, Nautilus had been, was the undisputed industry leader, they reached out to Arthur Jones, and Arthur agreed to supply them with 18 Nautilus machines. There was no quid pro quo here. Um, the machines, when they were done the project, the, the machines were returned to Nautilus. Now, this was a pretty unique selection of Nautilus. They were the standard Nautilus machines, but then there was also um, Nautilus Omni machines, Nautilus duosymmetric polycontractile machines, um, Nautilus infometric machines, and two prototypes. One was a squat machine prototype. And the machines were shipped to West Point, and they were arranged in a very specific order um, so that the machines were going to be um, worked from the largest, more powerful muscles down to the smaller muscles, weaker muscles. So the cadets were divided into two groups. <clears throat> the one group was the um, Nautilus-only group. I believe they called it a whole-body group, but it was a Nautilus group, and um, all they could use was Nautilus. They weren't using anything else. The other group could use anything but Nautilus. So they were using conventional barbells and dumbbells, universal machines, and perhaps some uh, rival uh, company to Nautilus, their equipment. And they could train any way they want. They could train once a day, three times a day, whatever they wanted. Now, both groups were given a, uh, a two-week uh, break-in period where they were weighed and measured and tested before the project began. Now, when it began, the Nautilus group, it was determined they were going to train total body three times a week. And every cadet was given an appointment to show up to train. Now, as I said, they had a military mentality, so these guys did not miss a workout. Every cadet was assigned a trainer to accompany them through his workout to push them. And every session started with leg work. So when they began, every cadet in the Nautilus group wore a heart monitor connected to an EKG, and every cadet was filmed by two cameras. One camera was trained on the cadet, the other camera was trained on the EKG. They were synchronous cameras so the film could be put together so on the left side of the of the film you could see what the cadet was doing and on the right side of the film you could see what effect it was having on his heart. So the first workout took an average of 40 minutes and whenever a cadet's heart rate approached 220 
they eased up on them because at uh, when you're at 220, you're at the threshold of fibrillation where your heart stops pumping, it starts vibrating, and you can die. Whenever their heart rate went down to about the 200 beats per minute mark, they leaned on them again, giddy up, get going. They wanted to keep that heart rate elevated. So six weeks later, those cadets, the Nautilus cadets, repeated their first workout. Only this time it didn't take them 40 minutes. This time it only took them 30 minutes. And this time they were using, on average, 60% more resistance, 10% increase in, in weight per week. And this time only one cadet's heart rate went up to 180. All the rest were down around 160. So if you look at their first workout, and you gave an average of the of the resistance they used on the, those machines, you gave it a value of 100, and it took them 40 minutes. You divide 40 into 100, and you get a work rate of 2.5 units of work per minute. Six weeks later, using 60% more resistance, it only took them 30 minutes. You divide 30 into 160, and you get 5.3 units of work per minute. So they doubled their their metabolic rate, their work rate, while increasing their resistance. Now, Arthur wrote about this in Athletic Journal, and he called it metabolic conditioning, an ability of of someone to work at a very high level of intensity for up to 30 minutes. And he said in that article, how would you like to play against a team that never, a football team that never had to huddle up? Now, during um, the project, there were many visitors to West Point, um, coach John Chula of the Miami Dolphins was there. Other football coaches, a lot of uh, orthopedic surgeons were there. But um, that article in Athletic Journal is read by a lot of coaches. So um, it was more than a mere coincidence, I believe, that in 1975, the Baltimore Colts, they had not moved to Indianapolis back then, they introduced the no-huddle offense to pro football. But more importantly... A man named Dan Riley was on staff at West Point, and he knew about Project Total Conditioning. He was involved in it. When he left West Point, he went to Penn State. He was there for four years, the Nittany Lions. And during the four years he was there, the Nittany Lions went to four bowl games, and they won three of them. He moved on from there, and he went to the Washington Redskins in the NFL. And while he was there, the Redskins won three Super Bowls. So if anyone gets a young, gung-ho type specimen in who wants the maximum results from his training time, now you know how it's done. Now, on the other side of the coin, what things should we avoid? Well, Arthur said there was two common mistakes, gross overtraining and not training hard enough. And really, they're they're related. The marathon workouts <clears throat> started, I believe, in bodybuilding and perhaps Olympic weightlifting, where they would train um, their lower body one day and their upper body the next. Or they would uh, do uh, legs and back one day and arms and shoulder the next. They would split it up all many different ways. I don't know about you, but um, whenever I've been out for lunch, I've never had a ham sandwich for my calves and a glass of milk for my triceps. It's just patently stupid. And if you don't think so, if you don't think so, try and sleep the left-hand side of your body tonight 
and then try and sleep the right-hand side tomorrow and see how that works. <laughs> now, not training hard enough. <clears throat> um, if you're involved in weight training, I'm sure that you're going to have someone approach you, and like I've had many, many times, and they'll say, Turner, you work out. you got to meet this guy, Bob, I know. This guy, Bob, trains like a maniac. He's in the gym seven days a week. And I say, yes, your friend Bob does sound like a maniac. And then, of course, that they get a defensive. And I say, he's he's not training hard. He's confusing volume with intensity. And I said, here, let's let's make this proposal to Bob. Let's ask Bob to come out to the local high school, and I'll measure off. We'll go out to the track, and I'll measure off 100 yards or 100 meters. And we'll let him warm up and then tell him I want him to run 100 yards as fast as he can, and I'm going to time him. And then I'll let him rest. I'll tell him I want want him to do it 19 more times, and let's see what happens to his times. Now, recently at the the Olympics in Rio, Usain Bolt retained his title as the world's fastest man. I'm going to spare myself some math. I don't know the exact time. But let's just say he won the gold medal and he ran the 100 meters in 10 seconds. It would be reasonable to conclude that he could run the following event, the 200 meters, in 20 seconds. He ran the, the first 100 meters in 10 seconds, should be able to run another 100 meters in 10 seconds, should be able to run 200 meters in 20 seconds. No, can't do it. Can't be done, won't be done, never will be done. Because the 100 meters or the 100 yards requires a supreme effort of will. There's no strategy in the 100 meters or the 100-yard dash. There's no saving yourself or pacing yourself. Yes, there is in the preliminaries where Usain Bolt will slow down, provided he still wins his heat to get into the finals. But in the finals, when you're trying to run as fast as you can run, there's no pacing yourself. You're you're trying to get up your top speed as quickly as possible, and then you're trying to sustain it to the finish line. So whenever you see a 100-meter dash and it looks like someone is accelerating past another person, that is an illusion. The person in the lead, his speed is decaying. He cannot sustain his top rate of speed, while the person that appears to be accelerating is sustaining his top rate of speed. You can you can train a lot or you can train hard, but you can't do both. Now, another um, major mistake, I've been in several hundred gyms, I, I calculate, and it's very rare that I've seen anyone do really meaningful leg work. The first time I tried Nautilus <clears throat> machines was at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And they were down downstairs like they was like they used to do back then. They were always in a dungeon. You'd find the weights in the Y down in the basement in the dungeon. And um there was a squat bar on the squat racks and it was coated in dust. This is where their football team trained. Um a, 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 there's a Canadian physician I know <clears throat> named Dr. Robert Kudlak. He was the pioneer in bringing, bringing the medics technology up into Canada. He knew Arthur. In fact, he went to uh, the University of Gainesville with uh, Arthur Jones's wife, uh, Inga. And he said he sees patients, and they're not necessarily elderly, that are trapped, and that was his words, trapped in wheelchairs only because they've allowed their the muscles of their legs to atrophy to turn into cottage cheese. Now, when I say legs, of course I mean 
legs, and hips. The human drivetrain is like the Tesla automobile, the engine's in the back. So you cannot ignore the muscles of the lower body, yet many people do in favor of their pecs, their lats, their biceps, their triceps. Um, Bob Hoffman, the founder of um, Olympi the York Olympic Barbell Company, famously said many, many years ago, a man is as old as his legs, and so is a woman. Now, this one may be the most um, serious error, and that is neglecting neck work. Now, in fairness, many gyms don't have any neck machines. In fact, um, when I spoke at a couple of universities, um, I was given a tour of their facilities by the athletic directors, and there was no neck machines. And I think they said it was out of fear out of uh, litigation. But I think a more serious fear of litigation would be to neglect the working the muscles of the neck. When you consider that some high schools <clears throat> will issue a 16, 17-year-old kid a football helmet, a kid who has a neck like a stack of dimes, and sends him out onto a football field, that is criminal malpractice. Now, it's, it's vital for anyone engaged in collision sports like hockey and football and lacrosse, but how about the rest of us that are just passengers in a car? I've been in five pretty good car wrecks. Um, starting in high school, I had a nice little English sports car. I put it into a ditch at about 45 miles an hour, and I walked out of the emergency ward with more stitches than a circus tent. And then later on, I got hit head-on uh, by a dump truck, but it was a big car, big for that era, and I was okay. And then I've been uh, T-boned on both sides um, while driving. I work for I work for the city of Hamilton, <clears throat> driving a city pickup truck. I've been T-boned on both sides by people running a red light. But the worst was when I was almost stopped and a van hit me from behind doing about 45 miles an hour. And, of course, my head whipped back and took out the window behind my driver's seat. And he hit me so hard that he buckled the checker plate in the bed of my pickup truck back to the rear wheel wells. Now, my pickup truck had a very heavy um, steel power gate, which demolished the front end of his van. Wow. But um, I was stunned for, uh, you know, a minute or two. But um, I was fine. I was at work the next day. Thank you, Arthur Jones. If the proper use of his neck machines prevented one person from spending their life in a wheelchair, he died a hero. There were no neck machines prior to Arthur Jones introducing his neck machines. So if you're a passenger in a car, think about strengthening your neck. Now, a lot of issues bubble up from time to time um, in this uh, in the fitness industry. Um, there's talk about cams. There's talk about uh, strength curves. But one that seems to have some staying power is cadence. What is the perfect cadence? Well, there is no perfect cadence because fatigue destroys cadence. Um, during a lecture from one of his uh, studios at Nautilus, Nautilus Television Network, Arthur stood before an audience, and he asked them a question. <clears throat> he said, this isn't a trick question. 
is this fast or slow? And he pretended to do a curl with one arm. Um, it was at full extension, and then he'd curl it up, and then he would extend it and curl it up, and he, he would he would repeat that, and he said, is that fast or slow? Well, I think the audience was too intimidated to answer. They didn't say anything, and he said, obviously, that's slow. He said, that is approximately 150 degrees per second. Let's prove it. And again, he, he mimicked or mimed doing a curl with one hand while doing 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004. Now, if that's slow, how do you know that's slow? Well, you, to know what's slow, you'd have to know what's fast. Now, he had written that a fast athlete can move their limbs in excess of 2,000 degrees per second. So by comparison, obviously, 150 degrees is slow. Now, interestingly enough, I recently read a book review on a new book out. It's called The Arm, and it's about the effect of pitching on the arm from little league up to major leagues. very common for major leagues to have this, what is known as Tommy John surgery, named after a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers involves replacing a tendon in the elbow. And the author claims that some pitchers move at 8,000 degrees per second. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, but regardless, using Arthur's yardstick of 2,000 degrees per second, obviously 150 degrees per second is slow. Now, and Arthur was never obsessed over an exact cadence, but he was very concerned about your elapsed training time, when you start your training and when you finish your training. Now, if anyone's heard the name Dr. Ken Cooper, Dr. Ken Cooper is a cardiologist. In fact, he was President Bush Bush One's cardiologist from Dallas, Texas, known as the father of aerobics, and he has the Aerobic Institute down there. He apparently said he was going to determine once and for all what is the correct speed of training. Um, he was going to compare a fast speed of training of 90 degrees per second to a slow speed of 60 degrees per second. And, of course, Arthur said he's not comparing fast to slow. He's comparing slow to very, very slow. So the research was done. The reports were written. They were given to Ken Cooper. He looked at them, and I believe the... Um, the slow group, the very, very slow group of 60 degrees per second, produced an improvement of uh, 53 points, while the fast 90 degrees per second produced an improvement of 35 points. And he said, essentially, there's no difference. Now, Arthur said, wait a minute. Since when is 53 and 35 the same? He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go down to Dallas. I'm going to give Ken Cooper $35,000 and ask him for my 53000 since there's no difference. Basically, what Arthur had said was, if you could curl a weight in a third of a second, don't. Reduce your power, deliberately reduce your power for the first three or four repetitions, <clears throat> and say, now curl it in one second and try and maintain, which is three times slower than a third of a second, and try and maintain that cadence. And repetition by repetition, you won't be able to because of fatigue, and eventually you'll, you'll reach momentary muscular failure. So that's what, uh, um, with Dr. Ken Cooper's example, that's what uh, the state of science today.
Now, here's my own personal example. A few years ago, I met with Dr. Stu McGill, who was supposed to be Canada's preeminent authority on spinal mechanics, in his office at the University of Waterloo, spent a couple hours with him, very nice guy. And in preparation for our meeting, I bought one of his books, and I discovered very quickly that he is biased against machines. He relies very heavily on calisthenics and um, conventional equipment. One of his favorite exercises is the bird dog. You know, where you get on your hands and knees, and then you lift one knee off the ground and extend it rearwards, which is recruiting muscles of the hips. Now, if you can conjure that image up in your mind's eye and just turn that person upside down, it's the exact same position you'd find yourself in if you're using a Nautilus Duo Poly Pullover, except the Nautilus Duo Poly Pullover provides you with rotary resistance, direct resistance, automatically variable resistance, balance resistance, and all the other aspects and requirements of full range exercise. Once you know these requirements of full range exercise, you will be able to critique any exercise or any piece of exercise equipment. So what I also found in Dr. McGill's book was a couple of crude diagrams. And when I mean crude, they were just, you know, they weren't Picassos, but they were stick figures. And one showed um, someone in a seated position with a resistance pad against their upper back moving back and forth in a sagittal plane, flexing and extending their spines. And Dr. McGill said that flexing and extending your spine against resistance from a seated position poses an extremely high risk of disc herniation. Now, the other diagram, again, showed someone seated, rotating their torso against resistance. And Dr. McGill said, Rotating your torso against resistance in a seated position poses an extremely high risk of disc delamination. So I phoned Dr. Mike Fulton, who's an orthopedic surgeon and worked with Arthur. He's down in Daytona Beach. I believe he's retired now. His son is also an orthopedic surgeon. And um, when I told Dr., uh, Dr. Fulton what Dr. McGill had said, he went like this into the phone. <sighs> Jesus Christ, when is enough enough? And I said, I beg your pardon? And he said, John, when is enough enough? He said, I have treated over 20,000 spines using exactly those two movements. I have never harmed a disc. And neither has Dr. Brian Nelson. And neither has Dr. Vert Mooney. And neither has Dr. Ted Dreisinger, and neither has Dr. John Keating, and many, many others. When is enough enough? So then I contacted two PhDs in exercise physiology I, I um, correspond with, and I told them about uh, what McGill had said, and they laughed. And they said, John, do you know where that uh, research comes from? I said, I don't have a clue. I said, research conducted on the tails of mice. What? So so that's what science says. Now, Arthur said that he had read uh, read more than 10,000 research papers on exercise. And he said all of them ignore friction, stored energy, gravity, 
impact force, and true joint isolation. Now, a lot of research conducted this, a lot of this problem starts all the way back to 1968 with a man named James Perrine, who invented a, um, an isokinetic tool. Isokinetic means same speed. And he sold it to the Cybex Corporation. And the Cybex Corporation came out with the Orthotron, which was a leg extension, an isokinetic leg extension. And it was found in exercise labs, universities, probably all over the world. <clears throat> Supposedly, you sit in the Cybex Orthotron. I, I've been in one. You set it at a select, you, you set the, the speed and say you set it at a, an angular velocity of 90 degrees per second. And no matter how much force you apply against the lever or the moment arm, it will only move at that preset speed. At least that's the, the theory. Now, Arthur said, that tool is junk. And of course, he was attacked on all sides. But Arthur just uh, shook it off like rainwater. He said, uh, the tool is wrong. It's flawed. And guess what? Arthur wasn't the Lone Ranger. Slowly, over time, other people looked at this, and they looked at the Cybex Orthotron. And one guy, a Canadian, Dr. David Winter, University of Waterloo, passed away now. He said, that, that machine isn't out a little. It's out a lot. It's out as much as a 1,000 degrees. So I know that tool is still in use, but the field of exercise physiology switched horses, and now they seem to favor... Um, an EMG tool, electromyographic, which picks up the electrical activity inside a muscle. There's two types of EMG research being done. One is uh, surface EMG, and the other is they actually put a needle into the muscle, although they seem to have trouble finding enough volunteers to do to volunteer for that uh, that testing. But um, many about 40 years ago, Arthur got a corpse. And he hooked him up to an EMG machine. Now, the corpse was out of rigor, so he could move the limbs. And he moved the corpse's limbs, and he produced readings. And he said, those readings damn sure didn't come from the force of muscular contraction, because this guy's dead. So what was he? What was it picking up? It was picking up friction. Now, the first time, I also mentioned stored energy. The first time I spoke with Arthur, <clears throat> I'd asked him a question. And I found myself standing on one leg like a flamingo. He said, John, stand on one leg. I said, my left leg? He said, fine. He said, now raise your right leg so that your femur is about 10 degrees above horizontal and support the weight of your, your thigh with your right hand underneath the knee. Now try and extend the shank. And I said, okay. And he said, can you do it? And I said, yeah, but it wasn't as easy as I thought. And he said, well, that's because when you do that, when you raise your femur up 10 degrees above horizontal, you're stretching your hamstrings, your thigh bicep around the axis of the hip. And then when you try and extend your shank, you're stretching your hamstrings around the axis of the knee. And when you're stretching the hamstrings at both ends, you're creating so much stored energy, it makes it very difficult, unless you're a ballerina, to fully contract your quads. Now, the question I had asked him was, Arthur, why do you always insist on keeping your head in contact with the back pad while you're doing leg extensions? 
And he said, well, the, the seat back and the seat angle are set very specifically at 120 degrees to try and relax the hamstrings. When your head breaks contact with the back pad, usually sole your shoulders, and then you'll find yourself sitting bolt upright. And now you're going to have to, to you either won't be able to fully contract your quads, or you're going to have to throw it up to the top. And I've been in enough gyms, and that's exactly what happens, what you see happening. So there's a, there's a lot of um, um, misinformation out there, and you have to apply some critical thinking to what you uh, encounter, yep. which is like a com- combination of your own intellect and your experience, and try it for yourselves. I had no real idea until just recently how many people are now only training once a week, which I, I don't believe is enough. Um, I think that Project Total Conditioning uh, proved that three times a week is optimal. And then I recently found out from Dr. Michael Joyner from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, that NASA also confirmed, their research confirmed, that training three times a week is optimal. The training once a week, um, the the main flaw in that is, if you suffer an injury or become sick and miss one one workout, now you're two weeks behind, and you will rapidly decondition within two weeks. Right. So right. Um, I don't know if uh, – I hope all that was helpful. There's so many topics we could talk about, but um, I condensed them down to those few, um, and I thought uh, uh, people would benefit from it. Yeah, you're – yeah, I've got – about two pages of typed notes here. So <laughs> I'm oh, sure right. everybody else yeah, I've got I've got well a lot of names, a lot of numbers, a lot of all sorts of stuff here. And one thing I a question I do have is you and I have talked a lot in the past about how today's Nautilus equipment is so much different from forty plus years ago. Is it still possible to train uh as effectively with the current line of Nautilus equipment, if you had if you had the hot off the presses, whatever they're producing right now, is it still possible to train that effectively? Do, do, do you believe? You don't have to give me a strict yes or no, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I do know a, um, a very good friend of mine who was in a bad car wreck, and um, he told me that he is. Uh, using 150 pounds on the four-way neck machine. Wow. Now, okay. now the original four-way neck machine only had a 70-pound weight stack. So I think what they've done, <clears throat> once they've changed the cam, Arthur said the cam is the uh, heart of Nautilus. It represents that muscle strength curve. And, um, But I think that they've a lot of them have shave down the large lobe of Arthur's cams to make it easier in contraction. And I guess maybe the philosophy is that it will it will keep people training if they don't find it quite as hard, but it certainly can't be as productive. So oh, yeah. that's a great question. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, I'd, I'd be fairly confident that they're still meeting those requirements of full-range exercise. Um, sure which is a big thing. Now, a barbell only provides three of those features, and Arthur wasn't an enemy of a barbell. He said that a barbell was damn near a miracle if it was used properly. 
And uh, right. I still use, I still use barbells, so I mean, but I use a blend of barbells and and Nautilus. But um, obviously, I mean, you you know, if you're making it easier, <clears throat> it's going to be less effective. Yeah, and it's not like you, it's not like you can't get a fantastic workout and you can't train yourself and make progress, but maybe maybe it won't be. Um, It'll just be different. I mean, it might take, it's going to take a lot, a hell of a lot more effort. We know that, right? I mean, it's, I feel, well, I big, feel like, I, I, like I, go ahead. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Eric. I didn't mean to be rude. Um, okay. I wrote in my, I wrote in my book that, um, just by, by way of example, when Arthur could curl 100 pounds once, he knew he could curl 83 pounds 10 times because there's a link right. between your strength and your muscular endurance. That's with a barbell. With a Nautilus machine, when he could curl 100 pounds once, he could only he could curl only curl 55 pounds 10 times, because the Nautilus machine is loading is working the muscle over its entire range of motion. Ah, whereas, yeah. um, whereas in a barbell, you're really only getting it uh, in that uh, at the sticking point for those few right. degrees when you read the where gravity is pulling the bones in your forearm and the barbell straight down. And your bicep muscle is pulling the bones in your forearm and the barbell straight up. They're diametrically opposed. They're 180 degrees apart. So right. Yeah. Nautilus, you, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. Go on. With Nautilus, if your hand is moving east, the resistance is west. If you're moving west, the resistance is east. It's always opposite. Yeah, because the barbell, you start out with enough friction and by the time you get to just above midpoint most of the pressure is gone at the top it's almost like a resting phase that's what you see yes. a lot of people do they'll, they'll rest directly at the bottom <clears throat> or directly or directly at the top most of the time directly at the top and then on the way down the first few maybe few degrees you don't have very much and then the rest of the way then you're fighting until you know the last uh you know very very few percentages down back down to your thigh and then you're done. Well, um, you know, Arthur said that <clears throat> you know countless millions of people have done countless billions of barbell curls and they really failed to see what was happening. Um, you know, you stand in front of a mirror and pretend to do a curl. Well, at the bottom of the curl you see your palms, and at the top of the curl you see the back of your hands. Right. At, and the bottom of the curl. Your your hands are moving for at least for the first few degrees, somewhat horizontal. Yes, they're going to be moving up in an arc, but the, for the bottom few degrees, they're moving away from you horizontally. Well, gravity's pulling straight down. That's a 90 degree difference. And like I say, you know, my car weighs about 3,600 pounds. I I can push it on level ground, but I sure as hell can't pick it up. <laughs> There's and I, I think for the people listening out there, we picked the bicep curl because it's a, a pretty easy range of motion to work through, and it's yes, everybody can everybody can kind of uh, relate to that, and it's an easy access point, the elbow, all the way up to the collarbone. But that that same principle can be applied to uh, the squat, the sticking point in the squat. It can be applied to if a person does a deadlift. It can be applied to a shoulder press. So it's not the only thing, but the bicep curl is pretty universal when it comes to that, right? 
Yes, I mean, um, I think Arthur said that um, if you can get uh, um, past the sticking point in the squat with 300, you could probably do a very limited range squat with a thousand pounds because of the mechanical right. advantage of the knee as it straightens. That's why in the Nautilus Duo squat machine, the resistance literally triples from the sticking point to lockout. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. That actually kind of, kind of brings me to my next question. If we're seeing the, if, let's say we're seeing a perfect, um, a perfect horizontal line of where exercise should go. Do you think we've, do you think right now there's any way that we can get back on the boat and recorrect what we had about 40 years ago? Because it seems like from what you said and, and the stories that we've talked about before, it was a short blip in time that it seemed we had it down pat in terms of like the types of machine that we used. And then from right after that blip until now, we haven't really made any progress at all in terms of, of what, uh, what progress we should be, we should be seeing. Do you think we missed the boat or do you think it's going to improve eventually? I, you know what? That's another great question. I mean, <clears throat> okay, I've got I've got a website and I've got an inventory, uh, a library with several million words written by Arthur. Trouble is, having a website is like owning a, a grain of sand on the beach. Now, when right. Nautilus began, there was no internet. No one had a PC back then, and uh, my mailbox was once I showed interest. In Nautilus, and I ordered Nautilus Bolton One. My mailbox was un- literally flooded with brochures. There was, you know, new machines would come out. Arthur would, would, uh, and Arthur wrote all the uh, literature for the, uh, for the, uh, for the company. And um, and I and I've said this. It's on my homepage that um, Perry Rader, the original owner and publisher of Iron Man magazine, said that readers would report to him that when they got the magazine, the first thing they read were the Nautilus advertisements. They didn't read about Larry Scott's thrilling triceps or Arnold's thrilling thrilling calves. They looked, they got the back of the machine, the back of the magazine, and they leafed back until they found a Nautilus ad and they read it. There was so much information um, back then. So I... I don't know if it'll cycle back because <clears throat> I don't know either. there's 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 a million like as I as I said just recently I've found out that a lot of people are now only training once a week based upon some doctor's recommendation and uh, again I don't think that's enough. No, I think you know, you're, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. I think so. I I think that and the amount of effort that you have to put forward in training only one day a week and the variability of the exercises week by week has to be so intense and so great that if you're not puking literally by the end of the workout or halfway through at the very beginning of the workout, I don't think you're going to make any progress. A a person that's never strength trained before will definitely make progress. There's no doubt about that. But after I would, I'm just going to throw it out there. After about three months, you're you're going to be done. It's the it's the consistency over time with intensity that's going to be your best bet. And it's the hard work, not not the frequency, not the uh, frequency, like you said. 
Well, this is um, um, Dr. Um, who I mentioned, Dr. Michael Joyner from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Re- real nice guy. He's uh, he seems to be uh, um, an Arthur Jones uh, supporter. He's the one that told me about the NASA research. Now, this is a little bit maybe too dramatic, but he said three weeks of of bed rest equals thirty years of aging. What? Yes. Now, now there's something in Arthur's book the lumbar spine, the neck, and the knee, where he quotes uh, uh, a researcher named Perkins in the Journal of uh, Joint and Bone Surgery about um, that soft tissues are constantly changing. They're getting uh, either stronger or weaker and talks about the effect of immobilization. So if, if you know of anyone that's injured their shoulder and they've had it in a sling, there's a reason they only keep it in the sling or keep anything in a, in a cast. There's a reason they only immobilize it for so long because the deconditioning, yeah. it just, it, it, it's so harmful. You lose not only muscle tissue, you lose bone density. Yep. And, and you become incapable of moving the joint, a joint if it's kept immobilized too long. Right. Like there's no such thing as stasis in physiology. There's not, nothing stays the same. Right. And along with that, if a person, and maybe I'm chasing a rabbit here, but along with that, if a person is immobilized that long, not only do you lose muscle function, uh, flexibility, uh, joint rotation, but your cardiovascular system also takes a hit. Um, yeah, amen. And, so, and flexibility. How are you gonna, how are you gonna stay big, flexible by big. stretching once a week? Yeah, you're not. <laughs> you're not, you're not going no, to. No, you, no. Especially, so. especially today, because I don't have a stat on it, but a lot of the people that I work with all go straight from their bed basically to a desk for eight to ten hours a day, okay. and their yeah. hips and their knees are locked, and you know yeah. that's that's the state that we're in. So, um, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to be a hypocrite because I know a lot of my a lot of my clients out there will will say, well, how come we use the rope? How come this and that? Well, a lot of a lot of people I don't. I would say 90% of my clients, we don't touch like a battle rope or anything like that. But the ones who request it over and over and over again, honestly, to appease them and keep them happy because that's partially the business that I'm in, we do it. And right. have I told – there's been a couple of them that I said, look, here's the, here's why this is mostly bullshit. I actually had a conversation with somebody else's client. They saw me working with uh, kettlebells with somebody. And they're like, oh, you know, I read the other day that – um, this is the most effective workout you can do was this, 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 and this because it's a full-body workout, which is a whole other conversation I could have about what a full-body workout is. But they said that, and I looked at it, and the first words out of my mouth was, that's bullshit. That's bullshit because you're missing this, 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 and it just went down the line. He kind of looked at me, and I was like, I'm sorry. I said, the only reason I'm using this is because she requested it. You know, And I'm like, I, I know how to do three things with this thing, and that's what we did. <laughs> and it's just... It, you can't get you can't get through to people that this is all this is what you need. This this is only you don't need any more than X Y and Z. They want to throw in the whole freaking alphabet plus you know a big bowl of soup, and it's well, it's not it's not necessary. To to my horror to my horror, um, a few years ago I was supposed to be um, so I was told from a guy I really respected admire. It was the best gym in the world, and he'd been in way more gyms than I had been, and it really was fantastic. It was it was worth 
every bit of praise. It was just eye to eye or wall to wall medics and Nautilus, and it was really really serious. So this is probably over this is over ten years ago. So okay. um, I, I wondered what happened with this guy, and this guy was a very stalwart Arthur Jones disciple. I looked at his gym today, and there he is offering boot camps where his members are lifting logs. Now, I how can anyone justify having a, a log on the same gym floor as a machine designed by a genius? Uh, I don't know. You know, like what are these waving ropes, waving ropes doing, and everything? But but you know what? Um, one of the questions I was asked at the end of my my presentation was it was about uh, you know we have people with arthritis, we have people that are uh, have this, they have that, and I said um, everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> yeah, I like and, that. <laughs> and and, um, and it's just they're. You know, the, as soon as they begin to feel uncomfortable, they probably quit. So they're yeah. they're nowhere near momentary muscular failure. So listen, I I get it. Okay, not everyone has the same pain threshold. Not everyone right. has the same goals, the same motivation. Um, certainly, don't have the same genetics. So you know, you will probably lose those people. But I I don't think you have to prostitute yourself to keep them. I think you keep no. them by telling them the truth and educating them. I mean, I how can... I completely agree. Yeah, I think that's... I do, I, I do. So I think that's, you know, will, will it cycle back? I hope so. And um, But in the Internet age, um, oh, man. With, a million, with a million different experts out there um, and all these fads, like I said... Fitness fads are like buses. They're they one another one will come by in thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Most of them are going to be the small bus too. I'm sorry, I had to say it. <laughs> I had to say it. I had to say it. They they go for that shiny object and uh, yeah. You know, I I answered a guy. He was an American, a real nice guy. He asked me. He asked me. Uh, contacted me. Asked me some questions. I answered him. He asked me another question. I answered him. And when I answer him, I don't give him a simple yes or no or maybe. I try and give him a um, um, a comprehensive answer that I oh, think oh, yeah. he would understand. And um, anyway, after the end of uh, 10 questions, he said, you know, John, um, even if what you told me was true and Arthur Jones was right, if I wasn't having fun, I w I'm not going to do it. Wow. So I sent him a picture of Mike Menser um, shitting a blood clot on a, on a Nautilus compound leg, and I asked him if if it looked like Mike Menser was having fun, because <laughs> it looked like Mike Menser's dental fillings were popping out of his head. Yeah, yeah. that that kind of circles back to not everybody's going to have that mental fortitude, and it true. I think it's true. I obviously. Think it's, I, yeah, I think it's important when I'm talking about, especially when my clients ask me, you know, for a super hard workout. I have, I literally, I have two people, and they're both brothers, okay, cut from the same cloth. That would, if I told them, if I put 500 pounds on our leg press, and I told them, get 15 reps, and we'll see what happens after that. And they get to 15, and they'll do 15. They'll do it, they'll do it, and 
they would do it until I said I was tired. And I, and I have 45 clients, and those, those, that's two people, who would push so hard that they, they would just look at me and wait for me to say stop. And if I didn't say stop, they would, they would just keep going. And that's not everybody. And, and, no, you know, for, for the people listening, it's not that we're saying, look, this is what you have to do. This is what, this is what's possible that you, people can train this hard and that it's very effective. And it's about what you get inside of a workout. The whole point is you don't have to spend seven days a week training yourself because we're not supposed to be crammed into a gym for hours and hours on end, seven days a week. You get in, you train yourself hard, that's a key word, yourself, as hard as you can possibly train, and then you move on. You keep track, you keep making progress, you get in, and you get out. It's about being effective, and it's about taking everything and and doing what works in a certain amount of time and just moving on. It, it's not lollygagging through the workout. It's not checking your phone. It's not you, – you get in, you hit it hard, you make it adaptations to your body, you let it rest, you come back, you do it again, and you see progress and you move on. And it's yeah. it's not you as complicated as we're making it. Yeah, you don't you don't train and grow. You train and recover and right. then possibly grow. But yes. um you know you know who may have the ideal setup now. I mean I mean uh, no offense to my American friends, but um <laughs> I was this 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 was told to me by a, an American. Um he says that um Werner Kaiser in Europe um yeah, has, okay. has has probably the best gyms out there. There is no juice bar. There is no um, pro shop. There's no Zumba classes. There's no yoga. There's no Pilates. There's none of that. There's machines and clocks on the walls. And these guys, you come in, you train, and you leave. Yeah. And um, and and he says that um, he thinks it's the uh, European mentality. Whereas um, mm. he said, you know, listen, uh, you're doing this wrong. You're doing it too fast. Or, you know, can I show you something? Whereas if you and he said it's it's received, it's it's welcome. But he said in America, he feels that if you said to somebody, you know, um, you know excuse me, uh, buddy, I, I think you're doing that a bit wrong. It's like now it's like a, you're challenging his manhood almost. One hundred percent. This is like telling a guy that he doesn't know how to drive. Or 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 please uh, please his wife, like that's exactly yeah yeah no that's a hundred percent what it's like. When, when I first started in the business, it, walking when I saw somebody doing an exercise, you know, swinging like uncontrollably on a a lat pull down, you know, of course I should go and say, hey, you know, sir, I see you're trying to do a lat pull down. Here's the muscles that it's working. Here's a more effective way, so you're not going to get injured. Oh my gosh! All of a sudden, the guy stands up in your face. I've been doing this for forty years, and I haven't got hurt yet. And I'm bigger than you. And I'm like, all right, you know, that was, I, that's all I had. I did it one time, and I was like, never do yeah. that again. You know, <laughs> that's all yeah. there is to it. Yeah, that's so, spot on. But but you know what? The, on the plus side, now <clears throat> every year you're going to have kids that are want to go out for football. Now, maybe they're, we've talked about this, I think, that maybe the, the high schools today are better equipped probably than they've ever been. Um, yeah. 
you know but 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 then there's you know not every school is the same and and maybe kids don't their kids are intimidated they don't want to uh train in front of uh guys that are uh you know especially at the high school level um th- because the um they're not all the same they don't they're not all the physically mature okay yeah so yeah. anyway every every year you're going to have there's a new uh, generation uh, that are going to be uh becoming interested in getting bigger, stronger, more flexible. And um, so you, you're going to have that market. And then um, um, I would just hope that uh, a lot of these things, these fads, they won't uh, pass the test of time. I hope so, too. And I think um, the people, it's not necessarily all of these people. We, you and I talked about you know, how big football is, especially in the area that I'm in, the Cincinnati, especially in high schools. All oh, these yeah. places that all these places that have uh, the latest and greatest equipment, no matter how great it's set up, you still see clean and squats and or uh, excuse me, clean and snatch, clean and presses, and things like yeah. that. It's the, it's the people, it's the people teaching the upcoming people, and so, and I know a select few, including um, you know one of my mentors who uh, Joel Wayne Scott. He, I mean, he's you know, keeps it as simple and clean as possible how, how I've done it. And we've, we've grown together and we've learned from each other. And one of the guys that he he, he played at Elder uh, High School um, and went on to play at Moorhead State College. And, uh, you know, the guys that are in his weight room keep it as basic and as simple as possible and it's hard work. And if there was more people like that in the schools, it doesn't matter what kind of equipment you have you're going to be safe and you're going to be strong and you're going to do it right. So if there's well, a change they, in men- mentality, I hope that's what it is. They are they are out there. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, they're probably in the minority, but they are out there. Yeah, um, they are. I think it was in 19, um, I'm going to say 1987, I met with Tommy Craig. He was the trainer of the Blue Jays, and he was a real Nautilus guy. They had a full line of Nautilus. They had um, adductor, abductor machine, you know, yeah. for the muscle, the groin. And oh, yeah. today... Today, um, uh, that was uh, now the Blue Jays are in the going in for uh, the playoffs, I guess. But <clears throat> today they showed a, a picture. I don't mean today, but I mean currently. I should say currently. Yeah. Yep. They they don't have models. They showed one of their pitchers um, trying to strengthen his groin, walking around with rubber bands tied to his ankles. <laughs> you know how surprising it is. Well, maybe you're not surprised. But telling a guy to get into an ad ad machine is like telling him to put on a woman's thong. <laughs> that's, that's what it's like. It's like, hey, no, no, I didn't see women doing that. That's for that's for females. I'm like, yeah, man. you have okay, and, you know. So that's exactly what it's like. It's like throwing down somebody's underwear and say, hey, put put those on. No, I'm not doing that machine. Well, oh God. Yeah, but but it's. You know, that's that's a, a whole other topic. Why why people aren't doing certain exercises? So, and you know what? I I before we go, I I should say yeah. <clears throat> because I get a lot of this. Well, Arthur said you can only you only have to do it uh, train once a week. I wish that Arthur had qualified his remarks. And believe me, I'm not I'm not uh, ever would put words in Arthur's mouth. But usually, when I look at that whatever quote that has been presented to me, it's usually dealing with. The muscles of the lumbar spine worked in total isolation. 
Now you have mm. to be you have to get on a medics medical medical lumbar extension machine to do that, and right. and of course not everyone has access to one of those. In that case, yes, because sometimes the muscles of the of the lumbar spine are in a state of chronic disuse atrophy, and they're yep. they're naturally very weak, and so yes, maybe training them once a week or maybe once every two weeks is fine because they'll need, maybe need that amount of time to recover. But for, sure. for most people, for most people, Arthur said that if a week didn't have seven days, it would have to be invented. You, <laughs> you, you train on a Monday, you have 48 hours off. Now think about this, because the whole principle of pre-exhaustion is built upon it. You know, you work a muscle in isolation and then you involve it immediately in a compound movement to get a greater depth of inroad. A muscle yep. worked to momentary muscular failure can recover up to 50% in three seconds. Now, yeah, it doesn't right. follow that it will fully recover in six seconds, but certainly 48 hours it should be recovered. Yes. That's, yeah, and you're talking, yeah, that's, I, I just did a, a pre-exhaust workout on myself today, and and you can definitely tell, if, unless you're, you got to move from machine to machine, it's not like you're strolling over, you're sprinting to the next machine, but. Right. But, uh. Yeah, you're you're getting into like the physiology of it, but like that your ATP stores within a moment of seconds can get recovered up to fifty percent of of what it was right before it failed. You know, and that's right. boom. So yeah, that's that, that's more than enough time. And then you do it again, and you do it again, you adapt and you move forward. So that's why like the that's why I think the three day a week is is optimal. Uh, like perfect. You train on you train on a Monday. Uh, then you go back on a Wednesday, then you go back on yeah. a Friday. Now the body is expecting um, another session on Sunday, but you you don't. You wait until Monday. So now instead of uh, 40, another 48 hours, you give it 72 hours, and it can never quite adapt to that. So right. to me, yeah. to me, that's ideal. And if NASA proved it, and your own United States military proved it, that's good enough for me. <laughs> 